Hi. I have a secret. I record my intros at least like five times because I ramble about stupid things that I don't think you guys actually want to hear about, but I just want to tell you guys about because I love you. So I'm going to keep this as short as I possibly can. I had a really, really awesome conversation with one of Taylor's friends. She was amazing and I want to work with her like so much more in the future. I seriously cannot wait to get to this conversation. We're just going to go through a little bit of housekeeping first. Now, when I had my interview with our new friend, Lumi, it was suicide prevention week. And in light of that, I wanted to share with you guys the new suicide prevention hotline that is available here in the U.S. In case of emergencies, you just dial 988 to get in touch with someone who specializes in suicide prevention and counseling. Also, if you are a veteran, you can press 1 and you'll be directed to someone who specializes even more so in veteran care and PTSD and things like that. So again, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 988. Please keep it in mind and tell everyone that you know, just in case someone else may be in need. As for us, you know that all of my contact information is available in the episode description and every other episode description. I am on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, although I do not check them religiously. If you really want to get a hold of me, you can email me at stitchnormal at gmail.com or you can shoot me a text message at the Stitch Hotline, which is 971-270-0886. I really appreciate that you guys have stuck it out with me. I've been thinking a lot because we're coming up on like two years, which is so crazy. We should have like a special episode when that happens. I don't know what we're going to talk about, but it'll be good. Until then, I have got to get downstairs and get this episode edited so that it will be ready to get out to you guys on Tuesday, which is several days from now, but the children are going to be around and I am not going to have any more opportunities to do this. Now, theoretically, at the end of this episode, you are going to hear a song and it is by a lovely old man by the name of Frank Watkinson. Any of you longtime listeners will know that we used to end each episode with a song. And then I cleaned my studio area. And now I cannot find the list of songs that I have already used. And I refuse to use the same song twice because I don't really know. Perfectionism of some kind? Either way, I'm pretty determined to start doing that again. I really, really miss it. Also, if you guys know who you want to hear about in our new Fame and Misfortune series, let me know because I would love to hear your input and suggestions. I think that is all the things. I did just finish a series over on Fireside with our good friend Yvonne. So if you want to head on over and check that out, you can just Google Fireside Yvonne Sienemir. We're going to have her back here pretty soon. I'm thinking maybe next month, and I'm looking forward to that. So hang in there or get a hold of me and schedule to come talk soon because 
there are some big things in the works here and I really want you to be a part of it. Now there's probably not going to be an outro today in light of my little bit of a time crunch. So I'm going to tell you right now that I love you and don't forget, do something that scares you. So Taylor told me that like you about like what you do, like your profession. And it was super, super interesting. And I totally want to hear about it. But I try to do the first episode just talking about who I'm talking to, to like introduce them to everyone else that's listening. Um, yeah, we can talk. We can do that. I can talk about my um, my experiences with everything and what led me up to the profession. I grew up in Missouri. My dad was in the Air Force, and that's how he met my mom, um, who is from the Philippines. Um, it's hard growing up in a household where mental health was never acknowledged. My mom, being from the Philippines, she was in denial about it, and it was more of an embarrassment. So anytime I had any kind of, you know, suicidal ideations or anything like that, she didn't know how to deal with it properly. Um, my dad, his demeanor was always um, suck it up, you know, like we don't cry about things and things like mm-hmm. that. So I'm always like just find my own ways, I guess, of dealing with my own mental health and not knowing at a young age how to deal with it. Looking back now, I'm just like, how the heck did I go through everything that I went through? You know, have you ever had one of those moments where you're just like, how did I get through that? Uh, um, yeah, so many times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, at the age of um 12 my dad was stationed this is like after um the world i'm sorry after the yeah the world trade uh world trade towers had gotten um attacked so it was on that time and my dad was in honduras he was gone for a year and my um my dad was gone a lot he was gone for deployment a lot being in the military and um my mom ended up venturing out and talking to other people um and i was kind of like her secret keeper I guess you could say at 12 she started confiding in me and like saying hey I'm going to go to Texas I met this guy in Yahoo chat like you need to take care of your siblings and I was like the oldest child of like four other siblings oh my Um, god yeah so I was like their mom for like two weeks off and on and she was always gone and stuff so there goes my education I was really big into school and stuff and um my Like, I didn't hardly keep up with homework or anything. I was too busy cleaning the house, too busy cooking for the kids, too busy trying to get them on the schedule and doing their homework with them. By the time my dad, like, my mom would, my mom would keep secrets and she'd like, she'd use cigarettes as a bribery for me. Like, for me not to tell my dad anything, buy me cigarettes because she found out I was smoking and she was like, you know, your dad would be really mad if he found out you're smoking. And so she would use that against me. And of course, like, oh, cool, I get to smoke cigarettes. I have to say them to my dad. So I was, like, the middleman now. And it's a lot of pressure when your parents do that kind of stuff to you. You know, it's yeah. like, why the heck? Like, at the time, I'm thinking, oh, I'm, my mom's my best friend, you know. Mm-hmm. And then uh, having that kind of parenting, I kind of learned how to parent myself just by parenting my siblings. And, like, right. uh, I mean, I learned how to cook well and, and clean and all this other stuff, you know, but, uh, mm-hmm. but I, I really lost my childhood and all of that. Um, by the time my dad got back from being stationed overseas, 
I eventually did tell him, you know, I had that guilty conscience. Like, once I saw my dad, it's like, everything shifted. And I was like, Dad, like, I got to tell you, like, I got to clear my conscience. This is what happened. Mom right, was yeah. out. Hex was doing this, this, and this. And he finally, like, they spoke about it. In my in my head, I was thinking, okay, everything is fine. It's back to normal. You know, like, that's back, whatever. Like, he forgave her for the adultery and everything else. Um, mm-hmm. Comes to by the time I was 14, she was talking to somebody else. Uh, my dad had just retired from the military. She had met somebody at work, and he um, he was 22, I think, or 23. My mom was about 38, I think, with five oh my kids. Gosh. Yeah, so there we had to play that game again uh, of keeping secrets and everything. And during that time, like, I'm going to backtrack a year. So, so around 13, my dad um, had just come back or whatever, but, like, I had lost a friend, a really good friend of mine, um, my first boyfriend, actually, but he was the uh, son of the bishop at a um, Mormon church. He ended up he ended up passing away to a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Shortly around that time was whenever I started having my own experiences with, like, bodily harm and suicidal ideations. Um, mm-hmm. There was a point um, in time whenever I actually tried to hang myself with a bed sheet and uh, my brother saw me and he found me and he went to get my mom and my mom pulled me by my hair dragged me up the stairs and said if you wanted to die you should have came to me and I could have helped you with it what exact words and those words those words always stick with me even though I keep telling myself oh my gosh I'm healing from this you know but no those words are always there so yeah yeah, and so she was telling she was telling me to my face, like, you're just doing this for attention. You're doing this because of this, this, and this. Like, apparently out of five kids, I was the worst one out of all of them. And it was clear, you know. Um, I was in and out of, like, I didn't really go to juvie, per se, but I did have, like, juvenile court and everything. And then because of shoplifting that had happened, you know, it was just, I guess, my way of having some kind of control of my life is sneaking out. Mm-hmm. Like, I get to do this now. Like, I... um we meet up with friends and I shoplifted one time, one time, and I got in trouble for it. And <laughs> yeah, it's my little brother, and we never stole ever again. <laughs> but <laughs> during that time is whenever I had met one of the most, like this man. He was my probation officer, and he turned out he knew my dad. Um, so they went to, they were in the military together actually. But like I met this man, and his name was Marty, and he was my probation officer, and I just whenever you have an adult that can actually that sits there and listens to you it like it meant the world to me like to some have somebody who listened to me and like actually tried to help me and like guide me like guidance so having guidance from an an adult it meant a lot to me um and so from then on out I was like I want to be a probation officer for the juvenile system um and that's what I worked towards in my later years but so I'm so cool (laughs) yeah so you know I'm 14 years old. Um, my mom's doing this all over again. I, um, of course, like I told you, I had the suicidal ideations. I had my mental health was like getting really bad. And my mom ended up running away with the 20, 23 year old to Chicago. My dad is freshly retired. And this is the first time that I had realized that my dad was reporting me anytime I was interesting. So the first time this happened, he had said that he bought a dress for my mom. Of course, I developed really early. Like, when I was 13, I was like I was 18 years old. 
and I got that comment all the time growing up. So my dad got me got my mom this dress and was like, hey, can you try this on? I bought this for your mom. I want to see if it fits you. If it fits you, if it's her. So I tried it on, and then I look behind the vase in his room, and I see this, like, red light flashing. And I'm like, what the heck is that? And I go back to look at it, and it's it's the VHS camera. Oh, my God. And, yeah, and so I go into the bathroom, and that's where I decided to change. And then a couple weeks later, the same thing happened. I told my dad, hey, dinner's on the table. I'm going to go take a shower. He said, hold on a second. I forgot to water the plants. He went to water the plants or whatever. I take a shower, and it didn't dawn on me then, but, like, looking back now, I can understand, like, maybe why he had the curtains up there. Mm -hmm. But he had the whole curtains to just the clear curtains. And it's sickening to my stomach to think of that, but it made me wonder, like, how many times has he recorded me in the shower? When I found out, like, I saw the, the flashing light again in the hamper, got dressed really quick, went to my room, pretended I didn't see anything. And then the very next day, I told my friend at school what happened, and I just ran away from home. So here I am, 16, and I'm homeless. I was living, I was living just anywhere I could, really. I still had love for my parents. I did not want to get them in trouble. You know, my dad was a very right. well-known tech sergeant um, on base, and people would come up to me all the time or to my siblings and, and be like, are you so-and-so's um, daughter, you know? And so he he was pretty well-known, and it's just I didn't ever want to throw him under the bus for anything. Mm-hmm. Even. I didn't know, like, how to justify those feelings as a 16-year-old, like, your dad did this to you, yet you're still defending him, you know? Right. Um but also, I, I was protecting my siblings. I never reported anything. Like, my dad tried to stop me because he found out I was walking out of the house with all these bags of clothes and everything. And he said, where are you going? And I told him, I was like, I, I know what you did. You had that camera in the bathroom, and it, I'm uncomfortable. And and he's like, well, I can call the cops on you. I was like, yeah, and I'll, um, I'll tell them what you did. And he just said they're silent as can be. Um, and I just left. Yeah. Like, he didn't even, I, like, try to apologize or anything. He just stood there? Yep, he just said that. I think he was in shock. I think he was embarrassed. I think there's just a lot of feelings that he was dealing with, and he didn't know how to handle it. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, he just he just stood there and watched me leave. Uh, my younger brother, my little brother, he, him and I are the ones that got in trouble all the time. We were the ones that went um, and got in trouble for shoplifting and stuff. And he was literally running after the car. I didn't see him in the rearview mirror running after us. And he was about 12, 13, I think. And that's what hurt me by, uh, you know, leaving my siblings behind. But, yeah, so I just – I ended up sleeping, like, in park benches at friends' houses or friends of friends. Like, people I don't even know. I just slept wherever I could, you know. My aunt had found out. So my aunt lives in Tennessee, and she found out that I was sleeping outside. And, and this was, like, in the dead set of winter. It was 2005 is whenever all this happened. 2004. It's, like, the end of 2016. If I get my age correct, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's hard to remember like what year, how old you were, like what time of year it was. It's really hard. It is, yeah. So I know that I was a junior in high school. Yeah, because if I was to if I would have graduated, I would have graduated at seventeen, being a summer baby. But it was two thousand and four to two thousand and five was the school year this happened. I just know that it was dead set of winter. I found out that my mom was coming back for Christmas, and, of course, I wanted to see her. She was gone for maybe three or four months at the time, and I wanted to see her, and she gave everybody presents but didn't get me any because she had found out that I was not living at home anymore. Mm. And her thing was, if you were living here still, I would have got you something, but you decided you wanted to be a grown-up and leave the house. 
So I slept one night there and then left again. And um, that's when my aunt picked me up. My aunt uh, married into a Muslim family. She was homeschooling her kids when I first um, lived with her in Tennessee. They decided to do a one-year, like, still homeschooling and going overseas to her husband's um, family's country, and that's in Jordan. So I went with them to Jordan. Wow. Yeah, I lived there. Oh, I love it there. It's amazing. That's where I met my first husband. My parents accused everything of being organized in a way, like it was a setup, like it's an arranged mm-hmm. marriage. It was it was never like that. I mean, I was young. I ran so far away that I went to a whole different country. Uh, <laughs> and got married. <laughs> yeah, got married. Yeah, I did. I got married um, in 2006 while I was there. Um, what did he? <laughs> I'm hiding from you. Can you let me talk for a minute? I'll be back out. But yeah, so I was living in um, in Jordan, and um, I met my first husband there before we got married. So I was living there from the age of, I had my 17th birthday. Yeah, so around 17, um, whenever we got engaged, I had another, oh man, I totally forgot another incident that happened while I was living on the streets. Um, this one was like a big, this is one of the biggest reasons why I want to get into sexual um, assault advocacy and stuff. But when I was living on the streets, I ended up being, um, my virginity was taken by a rape. Mm. And my, when my mom found out, she, of course, it was my fault. Um, I shouldn't have snuck out. I shouldn't have drank. I shouldn't have lived on the streets. I shouldn't have done any of this stuff. So it was my fault for that. Um, well, come to Jordan, and I had my third, you know, sexual assault encounter, one of my ex-husband's uncles had, um, again, bribed me with cigarettes because in Jordan, mm-hmm. women don't smoke cigarettes. And he knew that me and my aunt smoked cigarettes. So he was picking me up to take him home to his his wife's house or to their house because she was needing help with um, decorating for a party and stuff. So I volunteered myself to, to help out. And it was about a 30-minute drive from one town called Zarka to Amman. And so we were in the car, and he's giving me a cigarette, and he pulls over, like, in this really dark place. He's, like, asking all these weird questions. Have you ever kissed a man? Have you ever done whatever, you know? At that time, I was learning more about Islam and trying to practice Islam and trying to learn how to be more modest and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, it ended up him forcefully, like, French-kissing me and everything else and then, like, assaulting me, touching me in places that, you know, and then me, like... Yeah, he, like, begged me to, like, bite him down there. And I was like, this is so weird and uncomfortable. So I'm, it was so weird. Like, what, what the heck? But anyway, so we get over there. The next morning, I call my fiancé, and I tell him what happened. And he shows up for the party thing, and we're talking, and we're tell, I'm telling him about it in person, and I'm crying. I don't know if this was his, like, it was just the way he reacted. He just, like exited the whole conversation and made up this whole scenario and told the family like his friend just got into an accident and he needed to leave kind of situation so I was like so confused about that and then like the very next day I wake up and I see that all the uncles are there all the aunts are there and they had everybody like all the adults in one room and I had to swear on the Quran that what I said was true so they were like 
it would be so like uncomfortable. Like I'm like no matter what I say to anybody about what happens to me, I'm never believed, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then of course I swore in the Quran that it that it was it happened to and it was true. And then he did the same thing, and because he was a very religious man and you know, and whatever else, they they didn't believe me. My aunt slapped me on the face for lying. My husband said he said I'm sorry. I don't know what to believe. But he's got a wife and two children, or three children, and I, we can't ruin his honor in his household and stuff. And of course, there were no witnesses. Um, you have to have two witnesses for it to, I guess, to go through the court or something like like that over there. I don't, I don't know exact, know exactly for sure. So that happened, and of course, I still married him. I still really loved him, you know, it, he, even though it happened with his uncle. I still loved him, and then I, I lived there up until 2008 came back to Tennessee to live and then my husband was trying to to work and save money so he keeps sending me back to his family's house so off and on like I go one year there one year back and by the time 2010 hit we had our first child she's very fluent in Arabic that's her mother tongue we ended up going back to Jordan from 2010 until 2012 and then we came back to Tennessee for good my identity started I don't know. I started feeling like I was losing myself, and I did not want to be a Muslim anymore. I mean, I wore the the scarf and everything. Um, I prayed the five prayers a day, and it it really is a beautiful religion. But I just I'm I don't know. Me and religion, I just have a lot of <laughs> right. So many, yeah. Like I've been a Pentecost. I've been Mormon. I've been so many different things. Just now, I'm just whatever. Around 2014, I found myself. I was a repeat of my mom. I take all accountability. I started seeking pleasure outside of marriage, and I met this guy. Um, and I don't say that very proudly. You know, it's it's embarrassing to say, but it's what happened, you know? Right, yeah, um, I understand. Like, I have been there. I get it. Yeah. And so that happened, and um, I left my husband, and he was, he was actually very understanding about it. He said, I want a Muslim woman to marry, and if you – are not comfortable with that. I'm not going to force you. And um, he was understanding about that. He was, you know, of course, he was hurt still by it. Mm-hmm. But we're, to this day, we're still like really good friends and everything. But so I met okay. my, yeah, so I met my husband. And after my divorce, I had gotten my GED and then got gotten into college and pursued the criminal justice degree. During my four years of trying to get my bachelor's, I ended up pregnant twice. So I had two more little girls. And then in 2018, right before I was going to graduate with my bachelor's, one of my closest childhood friends has passed away. He was an officer in Clinton, Missouri. He was killed in action. And that, like, around that time was whenever a lot of, I mean, it's happened all the time, but around that time for me, it was, like, a lot of talk about police brutality, and, and there's, like, a lot of police shootings as well, like, a lot of mm-hmm. police officers in action, and it made me kind of scared of, like, joining law enforcement because of my children, and even if I was a probation officer, you know, that's still a scary job as well. Oh, yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, and so I had reconsidered everything career-wise and, and all that. I ended up being a stay-at-home mom, and my husband was, or at the time, he was just my boyfriend, but he was working at a a fish market, and he was making decent money, so I just stayed home with the kids, and man, (laughs) stay-at-home mom life was the hardest 
it was hard for me. Being a stay-at-home mom with two young kids that are 13 months apart was so hard for me. And then living out in the country and not having a vehicle to even go out anywhere. Like, I was just stuck at home with these little ones. My depression just set back in, like, and it's always, like, been on and off for me. But um, it got really bad to the point where I literally almost jumped off a bridge um, and had the cops called. It feels like it was long ago, but it was, like, literally only 2018 that this happened. But it's just it's a daily struggle when it comes to things like that, you know, like, especially mm-hmm. the suicide ideations. It's, like, it's always there. Any kind of scenario, like, I have all these intrusive thoughts sometimes. I try to get into mental health or therapy or anything like that, and I just I can't afford it even with insurance. It's not it's not affordable. Oh my gosh, yeah, that is that's like such a huge thing that I want to talk about on the podcast. Sorry, I just like yeah, oh, it's okay. <laughs> where I live, there is like the health department has their own mental health stuff, but I still have mm-hmm. to drive the next town over to go there, oh my and gosh. that's the only place that I can go to to get help for me or my family at all. And they're the only place that accepts my insurance. We get state insurance because, like, I just mm-hmm. I can't afford real insurance, you know? Right. And, and like, if I, I take one of my daughters to a specialist, she got transferred out of the one in the next town over, so we have to drive an hour to go to a specialist for her. Oh, and my then God. It's insane. Like, if you live in a rural area with, like, lots of, like, farms and, like, agriculture and stuff, like, there's nothing for you. It's horrible. Yeah, it it really is. There's so many of us that are struggling, and we can't do anything because of where we live, and it's just (laughs) ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. Anyways, go on. Sorry. (laughs) No, no, it's okay. So, yeah, so I had, like, very limited access to mental health. My husband was working, but he didn't have insurance. Through his work, I had the state insurance, but it was it just really hard. And when I retracted and went back to the suicidal ideations and everything, and by the time my kids were one and two, I decided I didn't want to be in a relationship anymore. I left him, and we separated for about a year. And I ended up trying to get on TANF, food stamps, things like that to get help. My friends and I got an apartment together, working through TANF, it's a requirement that you gain some kind of employment. And mm-hmm. so we had employment, we had employment trainings. My employment specialist, she told me that there was a job opening at the food stamp office and that I have a really good resume and that I should try to apply for it. So I've got my degree and everything else. So I applied for it. And that was the first time that I worked in a government job. And so mm-hmm. I was a secretary for a little bit. After a year of being a secretary there, I became a caseworker. And this was around 2020. So I was a food stamp caseworker around the peak of COVID. And it was, oh. man, that out was the worst. I would have calls <sighs> from people. And I actually like the secretary job a lot better than being a caseworker. Um, they, <laughs> they work for the state, man. They work for the state. Yeah. It's something. I had great insurance through them, but the pay sucked. The pay was nothing at all. Like, I was getting, uh, I don't know, about maybe barely $700 every two weeks, mm. 650 most. Yeah. And um, being a mother of three kids, and it was not, I couldn't do that anymore. Um, yeah. 
so here comes 2020 and COVID hits and they're overworking us. We're getting yelled at by anybody who's receiving food stamps. They call us and they're, you know, everybody mm-hmm. has their I understand that. And the whole PEBT thing. So we had to learn a whole new system. It was just, it was just a lot. And the fear, you know, that fear that they instilled in us about COVID and everything else and all these deaths. Like it was just scary. It was a scary time for me. And my mental health suffered again, and I ended up my my mental health and my boyfriend's mental health. Like he was the general manager at a fish market, and it was just him and another employee. And even though all the other businesses closed and everything, he was still required to work. And he worked extra hours and didn't get any difference in pay because he was on salary. And um, he started drinking a lot more and developed um, an alcohol use disorder. So dealing with that, he ended up having a mental breakdown of his own and got, um, it scared all of us. I ended up leaving to his mother's house um, to Florida. I took my kids, quit my job, went to Florida. He ended up in jail for a night. He came down to Florida, we tried to work things out again. And, you know, whenever we don't, you have mental health and it's not, being treated, it, you never know what to expect, ever. You don't ever know what to expect. That's for myself and for him and for anybody else. March of 2020, we moved to Florida, and we lived there for about six months. And then I was working for three months at an employment service, temporary employment agency, and I was one of their recruiters. And it was great pay. The job just didn't last for me. I kept trying to ask for just any kind of criticism, like how well I'm doing, am I doing okay? And ask for like anytime I ask for clarity about something, I guess my supervisor was upset about it, um, or it rubbed her the wrong way because it, it just wasn't the job for me, and she was the, the right supervisor to to train me on that job. But I ended up losing my job in Florida, and we made the decision to move back to Tennessee. I, I'm not really a church goer. I don't. I don't. We don't go to church. But my husband's grandmother invited us to a Father's Day event at her church one time, and I was there, and I saw this girl that I knew from years back uh, from church, and I was just talking to her and letting her know, like, that I'm back in Tennessee, I'm looking for a job, and she told me that one of her jobs, uh, one of her job positions are opening now, so I asked her about it, and she was talking about homeless outreach and about helping people get disability checks and everything and helping people get into substance use treatment and mental health. And my eyes just lit up and I got goosebumps everywhere. And I was like, can I please like apply for one of those positions? Because I really, I would love to work, you know, in something like that. And she said that I would just have to put the application in and that it's in Nashville. So Nashville is about 45 minutes from me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was one of the things that I was worried about because I didn't know if I could commit to working in a different city, especially a bigger city than I'm used to. Right. Uh, yeah, so I ended up applying. I got the job. It was August 23rd of 2021. I still remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I got the job. And so what I do now is I meet with people that are experiencing homelessness, and I do an assessment with them just to see what their needs are. We try to help people get the regular necessities, to help them get jobs and stuff like that. So, like, the ID, the birth certificate, social security card. If they express that they are wanting help with substance use treatment, then we help them get into uh, some kind of program. We provide outreach support, 
tents, sleeping bags, food. So cool. our food is only, yeah, our food is donations only though right now. So it's really hard because sometimes we're like, we get into an encampment and there's people that, you know, that don't have food and we don't have food to give them this. That's one of the hardest things is like going somewhere empty handed, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I love the job that I do. It's a lot of work. It's, it's a lot. Our main goal is to try to get them into housing. We break down all those barriers with them. We try to make, we want to, we want to empower people. We don't want to do things for people. Mm-hmm. So we provide like the transportation support, like with bus passes or gas cards if they're living in their car. And then if they need food stamps or something, like I help them fill out the application or I'll send them to the DHS office and be like, here's your ID, you know, just here's your application. Go ahead and go over there. Let me know how it goes. So I don't want to do everything for people because I don't want to take away their independence. That right. is not something we want we want to do for anyone. And I know it's sometimes we call them members. So sometimes the members don't see it that way. They see it as like, you're my caseworker. You have to do this, this, and this for me. And I, there's many times I've had to like clarify that with them. Like, this is your journey, and we're just here to provide you the help that you need during this journey. But we're not going to like dictate anything. You know, we want to respect everybody's sense of autonomy. Right. Um, and which is why we don't force anybody to get into treatment or receive mental health. Um, that's not fair to them. And if they don't want it, it's not going to work out for the best. There's a lot of a lot of scary times, too. There's a lot of different moments that make me rethink what I'm doing. Sometimes, like, it's, it's not always safe. There's a lot of dangers in what we do. We do carry Narcan. We're Narcan trained. First aid, CPR trained as well. I've had to call an ambulance for somebody one time because he was unconscious. It turned out he was having a diabetic coma. Oh, man. I was so scared. Yeah. I was so scared. I thought he was at the brink of death. It's like, he was so blue. It was so awful. He wasn't able to speak or anything, you know, because he's in that mm-hmm. diabetic shock. And then now with the new law that passed, so J- July 1st, 2022, of course, they passed a new law where it's illegal to sleep outside on public property. So anybody that sleeps on public property is now hit with a felony. Yes, I heard about that. Oh my gosh, that'd be so bad. It yeah, it we I actually protested that when that happened. We me and a couple of coworkers did and as far as I've seen they haven't really the law enforcement hasn't really enforced that law yet. But we do have a rival group on Facebook, they're called Reclaim Brookmead. Um, so Brookmead is one of our largest encampments in Nashville, and these people, they want Nashville to enforce this law. They want all the home, the people experiencing homelessness out of that area because that's their park. They want to rehabilitate the park. They want the park back and all this other stuff, and they don't really care about the people. As much as they like to say that they do, they really don't. So we're having conflicts with them. <laughs> I can't believe that, like, you – I heard about that. I've been, like, <laughs> since – I want to say, like, June 2020, I got su- started getting, like, super into politics and stuff. And so I've been watching podcasts and stuff a lot. Yeah. And one of them talked about how it's it's a felony now. And, like, that's just so ridiculous because, like, what are you supposed to do then? Like, you're a felon it, then. It is because – so it's not just a felony in Nashville. It's like the whole state of Tennessee. Um, yeah. So I don't know. There's cities like Chattanooga. I don't know how they're handling it or, you know, or even Memphis. 
because I know they have a huge population as well. I just know that if you are ever hit with a felony, you have no access to housing because you cannot have a felony to get on Section 8. And Section 8, like Section 8 vouchers, the government vouchers is what we apply for for these people. So if you're going to throw a felony on them, right? Then there's, you're not going you're not going to help with the homeless the homeless problem because they're still going to be homeless, not going to be able to get a place of their own. You know, so it's like it's very counteractive. It makes no sense. A lot of us are are furiated with it. Plus, now in Nashville, they're doing what they call the clean sweep. So they're cleaning out all these encampments, just left to right. Like you, I go to one area and I have my members there, and I and I serve them, and I help them, you know, break down the barriers and stuff, and schedule an appointment. Next thing you know, I go over there, and the encampment is fully demolished. There's nothing oh there. Oh my gosh. No- a lot of people don't have phones, so it's not like I can just call them and be like, hey, you're not at this encampment. Can you meet me somewhere else? No, I, I have to find them again. And Nashville's a huge city. I can't just, you know, there's no telling where they went. And and some of them end up being on the, the Section 8 waiting list. And if we can't find them within a certain amount of time, their voucher expires and they can't get into housing. So it's like you do all this work. You work so hard with these people and they do so much on their own too and it's like you're almost there and then everything just shattered again and yeah oh my gosh it's so frustrating because like if anything the government should be with us like there's always you know the history of like social workers and government and all this other stuff but like we should be in alignment with each other and serve a certain a common purpose and that's not what's happening here the biggest problem that i'm seeing though is like so we have this assessment called the VI SPIDAT, and that's a vulnerability, like, index. But you have to ask all these questions to see who's the most vulnerable out on the street. Now, if you don't have any – if you're working and if you don't have any kind of substance use um, disorder or a mental health disorder, you're going to be the, on the lowest score. So you're going to be seen – you're going to be overseen, actually. Like, you're not going to be even a priority for any of mm-hmm. these, uh, the vouchers first. So – so that's hard, too, because I've had people that are working, and they're able to, to take care of themselves, so they're not able to afford housing. So they're able to get food. They're able to provide transportation for themselves. The only thing they're not able to do is afford any kind of housing because the prices of housing are so high, and then we can't really help them because their score is so low for a Section 8 voucher, which makes no sense because these are the ones that are really trying, and they're able to take care of themselves, you know. Right, um, right. And and I see that a lot too. And I'm like, how do we how do we fix that problem, you know? And then the ones that that are really wanting the help, that I you know they want the help and they say they want the help, but it's hard for them. Like, yeah, I mean, I've never I've never experienced any kind of addiction myself. I've just been surrounded by it, you know, with my dad, my brother, and my husband. They're all they they use alcohol so it's like really hard for me to understand from that perspective but i do know that when people have that cry for help and they want the help and we get them into a substance use treatment center and they're done with their program they come back and they're expecting to get on housing and our housing list is so long that they have to go back on the streets mm-hmm. so and that's very disappointing because because you know we have so much faith in people you know and they have faith in themselves too but when you're surrounded by all that all over again, you're you're jeopardizing your sobriety. And 
I don't know, part of me is, like, I just want to open up my own, like, sanctuary or something for people that get out of treatment, like a, a little group home or something for people that yeah. have homelessness and all this other stuff. But I don't know. I don't know what the solution is or what the answer is, but what we're doing right now, it's not it. <laughs> it's yeah. Not. How long have we're you been doing this? I have been doing this for exactly a year now, a year and almost a month. Oh, yeah. it sounds so stressful. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it is. And everybody's like, you're going to get burnt out. And I was like, no. I mean, I have my hard days. Of course, everybody has their hard days. But uh, mm-hmm. I think as long as I have that understanding and, like, people are where they're at because, you know, things have happened. It's not like – I don't ever try to judge people. I know it was Carl – his name is Carl. I forgot his last name. It's one of the uh, psychologists that I follow. Anyways, he he was talking about unconditional positive regard. And ever since I've learned about what that is, I just see things differently. Like, I don't see people for what they've done or what they do or how they are. Like, I get yelled at a lot by some people, but I just – I try not to take it personally, you know, because that's their journey. That's Everybody has the right to be angry. Everybody has the right. And they're going through a lot harder things than I've ever dealt with as well, you know. If anything, that's the hardest part of my job is seeing how other people treat people experiencing homelessness because I want to speak up for them. Mm-hmm. But no matter how I say things, they're not going to get it from my understanding. Whenever we use harmful words like junkie, like that's not nice. Or I don't even like the word crazy or insane or anything like that. Like that's dehumanizing. Those are not words that I like to use or like to hear. But whenever you have like people in Nashville who are, there's a lot of, of course, rich celebrities and all this other stuff out there. But whenever you have people like that that have that kind of mindset towards the homeless population, I just that's what hurts my feelings the most because what if you were in that position that they're in, you know? You don't know the kind mm-hmm. of struggles that they have. I, uh, one of my members, she's the mother of a child who was in a high school shooting. You know, we have we deal with vicarious traumas all the time, and that when she was telling me her story and showing me the pictures and like all the harassment that she was getting, after the fact, I couldn't help but cry there with her. And then last, no, the beginning of this year, one of my members, his daughter was his twelve year old daughter was shot by her stepdad, and so like it's just I had to learn how to not carry people's, I don't know, like I had to learn how to leave work at home, but it's really hard whenever you, yeah when you care so much about these people, you know, and Mm -hmm. taking off that hat, I think my hat is kind of glued to my head. (laughs) Like I try to take it off. (laughs) Just like, but I can't help it. (laughs) No. Yeah. Um, I get it. I get it. Well, we, we get a lot of good training and I know that my, my director, she's really good at like trying to teach us how to recognize any kind of compassion fatigue or burnout what kind of things that we should do to to avoid the burnout and compassion fatigue. So we get a lot of good trainings and stuff. It's just, it's hard. It's hard to separate for for me anyways. Like I'll be lying in bed thinking about somebody like wondering if they're okay or, you know, like I've had a DV situations I had to deal with and wondering if she's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, But other than that, like, I, I really do love my job. I don't think I could ever do anything different. This is, like, because I've had – I know how it is to, like, not have food and sleep outside and stuff, like, through the cold weather and everything. Like, I can relate to that. But it just saddens me because I don't want anybody ever to be homeless. I don't want anybody to ever experience what I did. 
and here they are, and they're experiencing it a lot worse than me. I wish there was just something better. Like, California, the way that I look at it, like, they're very limited on things that they can do, which is really mm-hmm. sad. You would think that they would have that. Like, we have a lot of people coming in from California that are experiencing mm-hmm. homelessness. I totally get where you're coming from. Like, I think the whole reason why I started the podcast was because, like, I want to do more, but I don't know what to do. I don't have resources, you know. A little bit about me, like, I know you've listened to the podcast. So, like, I was abused when I was little and then, like, dealt with the trauma forever, like, my whole entire life. And then now I do transcription for some of the state hospitals. I do, like, forensic placement evaluations for the different whenever like someone gets arrested and they're like delusional or they're unfit in some way like Mm -hmm. uh, I have to type out those reports and those stories like some of them aren't that different from mine you know like how is that person where they are and I'm where I am when like we had like similar life stories you know and I think that that like really got my brain thinking a lot more and like how can we all figure out to just get further you know instead of getting stuck yeah that's that's the problem that I'm seeing too like I feel like we're just really stagnant like we make so much progress but then we just end up stagnant because Mm -hmm. like so I have a friend that her brother is actually experiencing, like he's been institutionalized and he was been in and out of jail and um, coming from Alabama and they've always just sent him to jail for anything. Like they never even did a mental health evaluation check on him or something like mm-hmm. that. And Or he, or he, they did it and he just passed or something, but they didn't catch all the signs. Like he has severe schizophrenia and we brought him here and he lives in Kentucky, but but he got a court order mandate to go to um, a mental institution because of how unfit he was. But Alabama didn't see that. And, of course, he was released recently, and they still have him on probation. So his probation officer violated him, and now he's got a warrant out for his arrest. Ugh. Like, they're not his mental health seriously, and it's so frustrating, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, my heart just goes out to my friend. I'm just like, all the things that she's got to – you know, this is all new to her, too. Like, she doesn't know how to – you know, she's considering guardianship and considering everything else. And he's been in there for almost almost a whole month and a half, I think, now. Um, and just we don't know what's going to happen then. It's going to be so scary. Yeah, so that's, that, that's that where we're stagnant now, too. It's like, well, hey, what do we do now? You yeah. Know, yeah. We got him this help, but after the fact, what what can we do? How can we still make sure that she's safe or her, her daughters are safe around him, you know? Mhm. Because yeah, oh my gosh. Yeah, so uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's just what is the solution? That's always in my answer. My question is like, what would the solution be, or what would the happy medium be? Is right. Yeah. One? I feel like I was like all over the place. No, you're fine. You're totally fine. It's hard, like, to go back through everything. I was on. I don't know if you listened to any of the episodes with my friend Yvonne. Uh, uh-huh. I I went over on her podcast and like did like my whole story on hers yeah. and I was also just like all over the place didn't know like <laughs> what I was even talking about and then like towards the end she was just like where was your mom I was just like uh-huh. oh my god yeah that's right 
it's hard. <laughs> and then like to say it all, it's it's almost like like we forget about it until we talk about it, and then it's like, oh my god, wait, there's more. Yeah, I w- when I was telling my coworker one time about my dad's experience and like with the cameras and stuff. Of course, I said it, and then I laughed, and she was like, that's not funny. Why are you laughing about it? I'm like, I don't – I didn't even realize I was laughing, but I don't know. I have no – But, like, what I are don't... you supposed to do, though? <laughs> yeah. You know, I... like, how how are we supposed to talk about it? Like, I don't want to cry over when I was little anymore, you know? I don't want to be mad anymore. Yeah. Sometimes exactly. we just have to laugh. Yeah. Have you um, – so I have – try to like I've reached out to my dad and like try to get answers it was about two years ago and I asked him about the camera in the bathroom and everything and his response was he wanted to make sure that I wasn't doing drugs and I've never done drugs before. so uh, yeah at that I never like gave him any kind of reason to believe I was doing anything another thing that he said was uh, well I wanted to make sure you weren't still harming yourself and then it came to I really don't know why I did it. I don't have a reason. So I guess I just had to learn how to accept that answer over everything else. Mm-hmm. My dad, we talk every once in a while. I visit him every once in a while. We're not as close as I, I mean, I've forgiven him, of course, you know, but I still don't trust him around my daughters alone. Mm-hmm. Um, even if there was no touching involved, it was still something in my mind that was not right. It still, like, makes me sick. Um, right, yeah. My mom and I situation, so whenever I found out that my da- my sisters were cheerleaders and they were having, like, going out to, with their friends and doing all these fun things, and I wasn't able to do that because I had to stay at home and clean all the time, like, I asked her, I was like, how come I wasn't able to join cheerleading when I begged you to join? I was always stuck at home, and she was like, well, look at you now. You're an awesome housewife. You know how to clean and cook. I was like, oh, thanks, Mom. Uh, <laughs> and also being the oldest the oldest daughter, second child kind of thing. I don't know. Like, mm-hmm. we just, I don't know. I grew up way different than my siblings did. Mm-hmm. Um, but I try to call her. I try, sometimes I try to, like, ask her about things, like, in the past. Like, why did you say this to me when I was just, you know. And she doesn't, that conversation doesn't ever go anywhere. It's a lot of gaslighting and, Yeah. Her telling me you're 30 years old, you should grow up already, or, you know, you need to move past that. Like, you're still thinking about that kind of stuff. Like, get over it. <laughs> it's easier for right. her to say. <laughs> yeah. It frustrates me so much when an adult is like, why can't you just work past this thing, you know? My yeah. um, older daughter has a friend that has, like, a really tough home life, and her mom is just like, why – we're all moving on with our lives. We've all forgiven each other and we're all like over it. My, my daughter's friend, like, Oh my God, I wish I could just swoop in and take that girl. I swear. Yeah. I feel that way a lot about it's one of those things where it's like, you want to, but then at the same time, like, you know, you have to do like your own self care and you have to make sure that like you're taking care of yourself enough to do something for other people. Otherwise you can't, you know, exactly. it's hard. Exactly. It is. There was a discussion that we had at work one time because they care a lot about our mental health as well. And I'm so mm-hmm. like grateful for this. If we ever have a time or a day that 
who just needs like the mental health day, we just tell our supervisors, we don't even have to provide a doctor's note or any kind of note whatsoever. It's just, hey, I'm having a hard time. I can't work today. Um, wow. And never experienced that in any other workplace before. And that's what I really appreciate with them. Just the fact that we're feeling like we're appreciated and, you know, and that mm-hmm. we're caring. That's about. amazing. Yeah. And I, I absolutely love it. I get comments all the time like, you need to start taking PTO because you're always working. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's true. I, I have a lot of PTO just sitting there, but I think it's for me, anytime I experience like high stress, my mechanism of, you know, getting by is just working. I overwork myself. I'm a workaholic, you know. Oh, I yeah. Just, mm-hmm. If I have problems at home, I just, I work extra. If I have problems with family, <laughs> I work extra. I'm like, I'm just going to work through this and avoid reality, I guess, or my personal life, you know. Oh, my goodness. Yes. I was there up until like the last couple of years. I think now, like, I've finally gotten to like a comfortable point with my life. Mm-hmm. but I have always been a workaholic up until this point. And, and now it's just like, oh, well, I work at a job where I can't throw myself into my work. So I guess I'm going to start my own side business <laughs> and I'm going to start a podcast and I'm going to take up all these activities. <laughs> oh, it's hard though. Like be idle. It like, is. Yeah. No. No, it's not. It's hard to. I know when I was in college, so I was, this is my last year of college, I was working full-time, going to college full-time, and doing my 90-hour internship with the sheriff's office. Yeah. Um, and so I was just working through all of that, and at the end of my internship is when I found out I was pregnant with my second child. And the lady that was doing the internship, she looked at me and she was like, did I not give you enough work to do and you still got pregnant? <laughs> <laughs> You're not busy enough. <laughs> I was like, I guess so. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> that's funny. If you could walk with me for a little while and just say something that'll make me smile, you know. It's been a long Stay with me till the morning light I don't want to be alone tonight, you know It's been a long, hard day It's been a long, hard day Because I need you now More than you can tell Missing her, and it hurts like hell. Oh, won't you help me to get out of here? All I need is you to hold me near, you know. It's been a long, hard day. It's been a long, hard day. Every day, but I feel her slipping away. 
just say something that'll make me smile. You know, it's been a long haul.